Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Fourth Estate to SCR's Media Affairs show. My name's Marcus Costello. Tonight, our last live show for the year, we'll hear from the investigative reporter at the centre of the landmark court case that has strengthened journalists' right to protect their sources. Plus, feminists of all stripes have been tearing strips from New Matilda this week for publishing a mansplanation of feminism. And then we'll look to the coverage of the Paris Climate Summit cheers have been echoing around the web, but how accurate is the good news verdict? First up, Antonio Mataferi, the owner of several supermarkets and the nationwide La Pochetta restaurant franchise, has claimed in court that 12 articles published between March 2014 and April this year by the Age investigative reporter Nicholas McKenzie were defamatory. Matafari claimed he had been portrayed by the Age as a violent criminal who was the alleged head of the Melbourne Mafia involved in murder, execution, political party donations and drug trafficking. Matafari wanted to know the names of Mackenzie's confidential sources. His request was denied. Earlier today, Fourth Estate's executive producer Jack Fisher spoke with Mackenzie. So your newspaper, The Age, has welcomed this outcome, especially given that it's the first test of the journalist's privilege provisions of Victoria's Evidence Act. Why is that so important? Well, the laws were passed in Victoria that give journalists this protection in theory, but it's the first time that a case using these laws has actually been brought before court and a precedent has been created. So you've got a, a judge now saying, you know, these laws, uh, this is how they should operate in practice. This is the, the court's view of the way that these laws should be used to protect journalists. That's really important because going forward, courts in Victoria and elsewhere can now look to that as a precedent judgment. So another journalist in in a year's time in a similar situation can say, well, you know, the court previously found these are the reasons why journalists should not have to reveal their source. Uh, And, you know, I can plead those very same reasons. And hopefully the court looking back on the precedent will say, yes, this is an appropriate judgment. And um, in in, in the next case, in the case after that, journalists can have at least some level of protection. So as an investigative journalist, how did you feel about the prospect of not being able to keep a source's identity confidential? Well, I I always was confident I would keep my source's identities confidential because under no circumstances would I ever reveal them. I mean, I'd I'd go to... It sounds glib, but like most journalists, I'd go to prison before I would reveal the identity of a source. If you start to reveal sources' identities, you might as well quit your job. So, you know... I knew that that was never going to happen, but having the prospect of of a court order me to do that and having the situation where I might have to refuse is obviously not an ideal situation. Uh, But then again, it's a situation that most journalists uh, at one time or another will confront, and I think most journalists, certainly probably all Australian journalists, would stick by their principles in that situation. Has there been any instance where an Australian journalist has gone to jail for refusing to give up a source's identity? 
It, there has been uh, instances of that. I think there was an, an instance in WA once. Certainly in Victoria, there was two senior Herald Sun journalists a couple of years back who were convicted criminally uh, in a court proceeding, and I think that was then overturned by some sort of appeal process. Uh, but you had a situation, at least for a time, where you had journalists you know, facing the prospect of, of having a criminal record for simply doing their job and doing it responsibly, for telling the public things the public deserve to know. So uh, there is cases in the past where the, the, the full force of the law is thrown at journalists, and uh, it's it's an ugly day for journalism when that happens. So how would you characterise Australia at this point in time in terms of the safety afforded to whistleblowers and confidential sources? I would characterise it as not very safe. I mean, the problem is not so much what happens when you get to court, but there's all these government departments, uh, police forces, they're searching for who the journalist sources are because these sources are helping journalists expose things that uh, embarrass the government or embarrass departments. So it's a risky enterprise in Australia being a source. You can get hunted down uh, for being a source, so you've got to take really um, sometimes you know, quite intriguing or extreme methods of communication. So I say to my sources, never call me from your own phone. Uh, use encrypted email applications, whatever the case may be. Uh, remember that you know, governments are watching and you've got to cover your tracks. If you are a you know, whistleblower with something important to say, uh, but you don't want to be sacked or charged for saying it. Indeed, as we move into the era of mandatory data retention, it seems that one of the trickiest parts of managing sources is keeping that first contact confidential. How are journalists able to manage that? Well, you can't control what someone who you've never spoken to or met is going to do, um, but you know, you try to educate whistleblowers or potential whistleblowers. Uh, for instance, I've, I've, on our website, have certain recommendations about how to contact me. Uh, from the very basic step of sending a, a dropping off a letter or sending a letter to the age um, or going to a public phone box to give me a call or you know, this so you'd hope the public and uh, and whistle you know, future whistleblowers are getting more educated about steps they can take to protect themselves when they want to make a disclosure to a journalist but that said some people just don't think that through at the time and they don't realize that what they're telling a journalist about on monday may by you know Friday become very big news and, and lead to a source witch hunt. So it, it's it's a dangerous game and it's a, it's a tricky game. And unfortunately, um, sources are sometimes exposed in Australia at, at huge consequence to themselves. They can lose their jobs or, or, or even worse. So that's your advice for potential whistleblowers in 2015, isn't it? Is call from a public phone or send us a letter? Well, no, it depends really on a case-by-case basis. If you uh, And when what you want to leak, um, it really depends. One's got to look at their own circumstances. If you're living in a country town and uh, only you know the information you're going to leak and there's only one public phone box in that country town, it's going to be obvious. It may suggest that you're the source. So it might be that you want to use uh, some sort of a, you know, encrypted email application or internet application through a, a, a cyber cafe somewhere in the, in, in the CBD that, that would much better cover your tracks, or you can use a Tor network, or it's a whole raft of technology that uh, on a case-by-case basis you think about applying to, to, to protect yourself. Um, and then there's really simple things to do, like you know, using a public phone box or or sending a document anonymously in the, in the post or, or these sorts of things. So um, I can't you know, give broad advice, but depending on, on what a person is planning to do, if they apply some pretty simple steps, they can go a long way to keeping themselves safe. Do you ever actively try to limit what you know about a source to protect their identity that way? Yeah, there's obviously times where I don't need to know much about a source. In fact, I'd rather not know much about a source. 
because that goes some way to, to protecting them. So I deal with sources all the time who give me very good information, which I can verify through other sources. But I'm not concerned about too concerned about who they are. Although I must say, in most cases, it helps to know who your source is to obviously verify you know, the information or their motivations, those sorts of things. So again, it's just about maintaining, I think, a pretty sensible balance. That was Nick McKenzie, investigative reporter for The Age, who you just heard speaking with Jack Fisher. Now, joining me in the studio tonight is New Matilda fellow Wendy Bacon. Good evening. Good evening. And on the phone from Crikey, Miriam. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, I thought before we launch into our second topic, you probably had some thoughts listening back to that interview, Wendy. Well, I did have some thoughts, and actually was uh, one of my thoughts was that I think it uh, would be difficult to do uh, better than what uh, Nick McKenzie just did in terms of um, explaining uh, the importance of shield laws, but also the limitations of them, and also the extreme importance now of um, protecting uh, your sources using um, technical protections as well. And I must say, you know, I taught media law for many years and, of course, practice as an investigative journalist myself. And I remember in all my classes, you know, absolutely stressing, if you're taking notes even off the record, you've got to protect those. You've got to use a code, um, you know, all those sorts of things. But, of course, um, then, of course, protect the notebooks. But now, really, like anybody setting out and anybody else who continues to practice serious investigative journalism must really think through the issues that Nick has been talking about and learn things like TOR, learn all also to be able to um, sort of think about it from the source's point of view. And the other thing I would say is that at the end of the day for journalists, it really is an ethical value that we must never, you know, even if you have to go to prison, you must never put your source in danger by revealing them. Miriam, did you have some comments that you wanted to add there to Wendy's? Um, oh, well, I think, um, yeah. I think everything Wendy said is is very very true and very important. Um, I know a lot of um, one one sort of corollary of um, one outcome of what she's saying, I guess, is that um is that journalists should be careful who they promise anonymity or who they promise um, to protect. Um, often a, a lot of sources, um, you know, have all sorts of reasons for not wanting their name to be out there, and and I guess journalists just have to work very carefully to make sure that anyone they guarantee anonymity or confidentiality to, they're, they're willing to back up the fact that they could go to jail for that person and just um, weigh up whether the story's worth it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, um, and I guess also the role of protection by your editor comes to play there as well, which moves us to our next topic and the role of editorial oversight when commissioning from younger writers. Uh, certainly much less experienced writers than the likes of Nick McKenzie. So independent news outlet New Matilda has a list of submission guidelines on their website. It reads, we seek submissions on political and social issues in Australia and the world. Writing that is witty, not whinging, independent, not ideological, brave, not bland. Well, an article by Jack Kilbride that featured on the site last week titled Why Courageous Clementine Ford is Not the Answer was not any of these things. Kilbride is an undergraduate at Melbourne Uni and a self-identified male feminist. He declared that Ford's brand of feminism alienates nice men like him and she should tone down her anger. Here's an extract from a searing critique of Kilbride's piece by Jaran Shee, the women's officer at the University of Sydney. 
Kilbride personifies the new era of misogyny and it seems that, ironically enough, he may be the one most in need of re-education. Kilbride is dictating exactly how women should talk about their experiences of gendered violence so that they must appeal to the men who abused them. This is truly victim-blaming at its finest. She's Critique was one of a series of follow-up pieces New Matilda published in the wake of the backlash. New Matilda's editor, Chris Graham, also published an apology of sorts and says a formal apology is in the work. Should New Matilda be sorry to not only readers, but to Jack Kilbride himself for publishing something that is, by most accounts, not quite fit for publishing? I'll put that question to you, Wendy, as our New Matilda fellow. Well, first of all, I'd like to say that just because Jack is a student at Melbourne University would not mean that should not disqualify him. Some students do some wonderful journalism and commentary. So first of all, you know, the fact he was young is kind of, to me, neither here nor there, although perhaps Chris Graham should have had his antenna, antenna, you know, probably very tight antenna, but nevertheless tuned a bit more. Um, should they apologise to Jack Kilbright? Um Well, look, he has certainly exposed himself to um, a lot of criticism. And I don't, um, I actually don't think the article was worth publishing on New Matilda, but I'm not sure that it's also the job of editors to protect young men from from criticism. And so, and I'd also like to say um, that actually I profoundly disagree um, with the critique that this is some new, terribly serious form of misogyny. Believe me, at 24, the first arguments I had when I became a feminist or really realised I was a feminist was with left-wing men who were very much in my life and in my face at that time. However, when I went to Liverpool Women's Health Centre not long after that to work and actually was exposed to very serious abuse of a very practical extreme kind, you know, it did put a perspective on my own middle-class 24-year-old experiences in inner Sydney. So, you know, a lot of this does depend where you're coming from as a feminist, how extremely you're going to react to it. At the end of the day, it wasn't a great editorial decision to publish it, and Chris Graham himself has acknowledged that. He has, and he plans to more formally in the coming days. Well, that probably means a longer editorial from Chris Graham if he runs true to form. But, you know, I've got a lot of time for Chris because he's a very brave editor and on many issues he's publishing some great stuff. He hasn't lost my support anyway. Yeah, well, I guess he should expect to lose the support of some of their subscribers, um, albeit that it would seem that he's uh, approached this with a number of follow-up articles that seem to explain the situation and arguably defend it. Um, Miriam, I'll put this question to you. Do you think in in commissioning follow-up articles that go so far as to defend that it dilutes somewhat the apology? Um, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think the whole the whole point of running commentary is to explore societal issues. And, and I actually think that the Jack's piece and the reaction to it was actually, a, you know, if you were coming at this issue without um, very firmly argued views on it and you read all those pieces, it would be an education, I think, in, in social struggle and feminism and all of that and, and all the critiques to the original piece, I think were really valuable. And, um, and, and I, I think this is, you know, this is part of the, the sort of bustle of opinion writing. And, um, and, and I'm not actually, I, I don't quite understand why this piece got 
got such a huge backlash um, the way it did. I mean, I, I thought it was a it was a piece that I disagreed with, but then I thought there were brilliant pieces published in response, and um, and I thought that was that was good, and it's good for Chris Graham to being so open to to publish pieces. Um, disagreeing with a previous piece he's published. Yeah, absolutely. We should hand it to New Matilda for the way in which they've triaged this fallout. Uh, although you could say that at best it was editorial oversight and at worst it was confected in the interest of clickbait. I don't think that was necessarily the case, but the article was viewed many, many times and it did spur a series of other articles published on the site. So we can fairly assume that this series of articles enjoyed a much higher than average number of reads. So whether people were hate reading or not won't show when these numbers are given to potential advertisers. <laughs> so when New Matilda's editor issues his formal apology, Wendy, as a gesture of good faith, should he discount the views, shares and likes that are recorded from this article? Look, I must admit I hadn't even thought of that angle, but can I assure you that it was not put there as clickbait? If you've got to err on any side, definitely err on the side of um, uh, editorial oversight in this case and not maybe thinking through the issues sufficiently before it was published. Look, um, I don't think it's clickbait. And secondly, one of the worst things about this whole thing and the saddest thing for me, and as I said, I do come from it as perspective as a... Um, as uh, I guess an older feminist and also I probably do share Miriam's ideas about um, uh, about debate but on the same site on the same day there was a story by Max Chalmers about the abuse of women with disabilities by I think early in the afternoon that had 200 hits this one had something like 35,000 now whether or not look New Matilda hardly gets any advertising anyway let's face it I don't think that's a big issue for me the bigger issue is is really a bigger issue about feminism and you know I look at a site like Daily Life on Fairfax and to me that's very soft feminism and all sorts of very contradictions in that. Um, people support all sorts of things with, with money that are also sexist in some ways and to me I find a little bit sad that the weight of such um, attention went on Jack Kilbright's article rather than some really worthy targets. And I guess people will be critical of me for saying that's not worthy. If you're at that point and you feel really angry about it, you should just have it go back. I agree with I agree with people arguing against it, but personally, it's not one that you know was. I would like to have seen the other article get more attention, and it worries me this form of um, online activism. I guess we do have to move on to our final topic. Over the weekend, world leaders reached a remarkable agreement on a global response to climate change at the Paris Climate Summit. The agreement has been front page news everywhere for days now and has been widely reported as a success. How many journos are really in a good position to make that call? Is it a case of media outlets following the coverage of other media outlets? Miriam, I'll call you back in here. I think it's, you know, journalists in this sort of situation are under enormous pressures um you know they have to work in in basically what's a massive warehouse they they're kept up um for days they don't sleep they're out of their comfort zone and then they have to interpret this massive document um i i think um for the most part i i mean i've read a lot of really great pieces about this and uh, some of them from journalists on the ground and, and some of them from experts in all parts of the world who've, who've gone and analyzed this and, and written for various outlets about it um, yeah, I mean, I think I think there's there's always 
instances where journalism can be done better, and this is a very high-pressure situation for journalists, but I think there's been, there's been a lot of really good stuff published as well. It's interesting you say that they're really stretched to their limits. You know, they're flown to the other side of the world sometimes. They just know there's mm. no luxury to, to cushion their fall, that they're jet-lagged. They're probably not in a prime position to produce their best work. What no. is the need then for outlets to send their reporters there, to not simply rely on the foreign press to, um, you know, interpret and then interpret the, in turn the wire reports? Is there a real need to send across reporters from your own outlet? I think it's. Um, I think there's probably some benefit. I mean, I, I know when I've had to travel to do reporting, I, I never feel like it's my best work because I'm I'm tired and I feel like I've been thrown into a situation and my research isn't as good. And um, I mean, that's just me personally. But uh, yeah, I think I think it's. Um, I'm sure there's some benefits, um, but but I think there's also drawbacks. But luckily, we can also, you know, with the internet, you don't have to be there to report from it. So, Wendy, New Matilda actually sent across a reporter to cover the climate talks. Um, what do you think the value is in sending an independent reporter across into the mix? It's interesting you should ask that question because just as um, Miriam was talking, I was thinking, well, um, particularly one story I read of Tom Mitchell's which described the protests in the street really brought a whole new dimension to me that I would not have otherwise been getting. But also I would also say Lenore Taylor has followed these um, COP events for many years and really her political analysis and her knowledge of it really meant I think it was it's very worthwhile for her to be close to the events. And another one I'll mention is Giles Parkinson, who is ex-Fairfax um, now with a site called Renew Economy, who is an absolute expert in uh, renewable energies. I think to be on the ground talking to people, it's only then you can get the wider range of sources because, in fact, if you're sitting back in Australia, you really are dependent on the main wires and uh, you know main sources coming through to get that opinion. So you know clearly you need people here, but I think it is really worthwhile having a fair number of journalists there, particularly from a range of outlets in Australia. Right. So it's not just about the press room briefings. It's actually about, you know, hitting the ground and going outside and um, picking up the pulse. I, I think it is. And I think the sort of argument that you're, you're raising here, I think, is a good one also. But I think where that applies sometimes is in disasters, major disasters, and everyone arrives there, they're not very well prepared. I think a lot of the journalists who went to Paris really had done a lot of research, uh, were well prepared. Um, that doesn't mean the coverage isn't overwhelmed by sort of sameness on the news outlets. You know, when you're listening to all the news, you're hearing the same thing. But as the day has unfolded, I think we've got a fair bit of analysis across the board from, you know, the very rosy sort of spectacle ones through to pretty pessimistic ones. Right. Well, in 2011 and 2013, you investigated the media coverage of climate policy and climate science by 10 Australian publications. What did you find in that survey? Well, in, in those surveys, we found, like, first of all, well, a number of things. But one thing is that in Sydney and Melbourne, people are getting far, far more coverage of climate change than in other some other areas of Australia. Secondly, that the big point was there's a real dichotomy between News Corp, which, of course, dominates some, some of the capital cities. Uh, only in Sydney and Melbourne do you have both outlets. Um, and Fairfax, over period, moved into a except climate science 
Times consensus position, News Corp was um, in some cases in some outlets extremely sceptical. So that was the main findings. When I think about today, well, first of all, I, I think there'd be a strong argument and probably was then for broadening the outlets and uh, now we would certainly have to include... Uh, the Guardian, um, and probably now would argue that we we did include Crikey to some extent, and they played back then a very good independent role. So um, overall, of course, without doing the study, you don't know what has changed. Um, I think that we would find the scepticism has gone down. That doesn't mean like Andrew Bolt, who's got a lot of influence, like quite recently published a very sceptic column, and that means that goes out to the outlets around Australia. It's not just on his blog and it's not just in Melbourne. So there's still some extreme sceptics out there. But generally, I think the um, there is less of it. And when I – sorry, I hope I'm not going on too long here. But when I go back to 2009 – and I think then about a woman in Fiji, I can't recall her name right now, but she stood up at the main plenary in Copenhagen and she talked about her fears about the waters coming, um, certainly eroding into lower-lying islands in Fiji. And she was mocked. The Australian Pacific editor of the Australian um, mocked her and talked about the house on the hill where she lived. And so there was some very vitriolic and accusing climate scientists of being frauds. And uh, I think, you know, overall that that has shifted a bit. But, you know, we need to also realise that that could come back. It could come back because it's all a matter of, of a political battle, I think. Absolutely. And I think since 2009, we have shifted to a form of journalism where it's people at the centre. So it's people's stories that lead us into a greater understanding of the topic more broadly. So we can better understand the real impact of rising sea levels by having it told to us by someone who has water lapping at their door. Um, Miriam, bringing you back in here. I think on this kind of thing, I, I personally go to, to journalists who I, I feel have a very good knowledge of this issue. So so today I have read Renew Economy. I, I have read um, Lenore Taylor um, and, and, you know, people who've been reporting on this issue for a long time because it is incredibly complex and, um, and, and, and you know, the, the agreements are often very complex and there's a lot of different opinions about them. Um, Look, I've I've dipped in out of a few media outlets. Um, to be honest, I I haven't bothered to read um, to read outlets that I would read on other things on this issue. Like I haven't particularly gone to see what the Australians written about it. Um, I guess because um because I don't particularly trust their reporting of this issue. Look, we've only got a minute left of our, the live show for 2SER for the rest of the year, so I thought we could have a little bit of fun in that very last minute. Um, what I'm going to do is uh, actually read out the best of the worst headlines from 2015. This is not a list that I've compiled. This list was compiled by Evan Williams from The Monthly. He's been compiling this list for a few years now, and each year it actually gets a little longer, which is a little disconcerting. So in front of me, and maybe, Wendy, you can share the honour with me. We can take it in turns to read the top 10 of the top 40 worst, best headlines of 2015. So the first one, public servants banned from wearing Ugg boot onesies. Treasurer Joe Hockey has paid the same amount as Newstart, a thousand a month, to sleep at his wife's house. Labor's Anthony Albanese to drop beats at DJ set next week. Australian Minister, 
Gay marriage could dam- damage our cattle exports. <laughs> Liberal <laughs> Senator Cory Bernardi mistakenly quotes American neo-Nazi. Joe Hockey raises prospect of Australians living living until 150 to justify budget cuts. And I have to cut us out there as well because we are running out of time. You can read the rest of that list over at themonthly.com.au. I say, and before I go, thank you so much for joining us today, Wendy, and thank you so much, Miriam. Thank Pleasure. you.